From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Mitch Pacwa. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Good afternoon. This is another episode of Pacwa Unleashed. And so <laughs> it's great to be with you. I have no idea where Jack Williams is. I'm not even going to try to investigate it. He's married. Let his wife take care of that. I will be here uh, for this hour and take a try to do what I can with your questions. Now, uh, let's take a look at some of the emails you have sent us. First of all, from Marcus in Malta. He says, Dear Father Mitch, when we pray the mysteries of the faith, I think we have three or four options. But why in Ireland do we have the option to say, my Lord and my God? I believe that the rest of the Catholic Church doesn't have it. Um, <clears throat> you know, there are a lot of customs in regard to praying the rosary. And the church doesn't define that you cannot or can use this or that you even need some sort of an indult to do this or not or that. For instance, to say, my Lord and my God, in reference to Jesus our Savior. Um, you know, that's, that's up to the way people choose. Uh, the rosary is uh, a prayer that has lots of options, and people use different ones. Um, for instance, when I was growing up, we did not say the Fatima prayer. Uh, I learned that as an adult. It just wasn't part of what we learned. Um, but it, it's an option to add that. So, you know, we we can pray the rosary a variety of ways. So um, in, in the, the Irish uh, you know, pray that, and that's a good thing. So I'm, I'm in favor of it. And then from Angie, uh, it says, I'm Angie, listening on Catholic Radio Indianapolis, Catholic Radio Indy. Why doesn't our Catholic Church discuss the warming, warning or illumination of conscience? There are so many people worldwide that have been made aware and experienced these many warnings, and many bishops and even Pope John Paul II has spoken about the truth of this warning. It seems this may help wake up some people. Thanks for your time. Uh, Angie, um, you know, this is, again, one of those areas where people have a lot of freedom to choose that. And so this would be something that, um, you know, maybe uh, may be done. Um, it wouldn't be something that the church would, you know, command. It would be up to individuals within the church because this is not something that is general uh, church teaching. But it is something, um, you know, that, uh, you know, we have an option to include. Now, it is not optional to tell people about examining their conscience 
for moral transgression. Everybody has to do that. And examination of one's conscience is very, very important and necessary for everybody. As even the pagans said, the unexamined life is not worth living. If you don't do self-examination, you end up being a fool. And being a fool does not make for a happy life. Um, This is uh, something that everybody should do, and the examination of conscience is part of it. Um, As far as God illuminating uh, minds and hearts, of course, that is going to be a special grace. And anybody can ask our Lord to help us Uh, examine our conscience and to give us new insights into where we need to repent. Um, But that's up to the Lord God, and it's a grace that he offers. So we can ask for it, and I think it's also a good thing. In then from Karen, uh, in Genesis 3, verse 8, it says that Adam heard the sound of God walking in the garden. Since God does not walk, could you explain this line? Yes, this is part of a uh, style, very uh, common in certain uh, sections of Genesis and Exodus. It is called an anthropomorphism. That is, you give God the quality of a human shape. Um, It's a way to understand God uh, and have him in our own mind in in a way that we can, you know, somewhat comprehend. And there are a number of anthropomorphisms throughout uh, those early texts. Um, It was an expression of you know, you know how people perceived God. Now, if you asked, you know, well, does God really have legs and walk? They wouldn't have said yes. They would have most. Likely, if you asked them specifically, they'd say no. But there is this awareness of God's presence that feels like He's walking in the garden. They hear Him in the cool of the day during the breezy part of the day. And, you know, this is, uh, again, very common. Um, Most of us use anthropomorphic ideas and images in life. This is typical of human beings uh, because, you know, our understanding is limited. It's um, not too unlike our dogs trying to comprehend us. When we tell them to go outside, uh, or when, when, uh, better yet, a lot of people will say, want to go outside? And, you know, dogs can actually understand a few verbal commands and words and things. You don't expect your dog to say, oh, yes, that would be, I really need to go. Uh, No, they bark. They respond in a way, in a doggy way, because that's all they can do. And so they bark thinking that you understand, and we kind of do. 
we know what they mean by certain barks that, yeah, yeah happy to go, happy to go, and as opposed to a growl. You know, they can't really, you know, speak like we can, but we can understand a lot. Well, the same thing with humans using anthropomorphisms are like a dog's bark in response to one of our verbal commands. But I would just add this. The difference between the, the the gap between God's understanding and our understanding is infinitely wider than the gap between a human and a dog. We're much closer to the way dogs react than we are to God. But we use what we can comprehend, and that's something that's worth really noting. Okay, and then. Um, this is from Robert in Saskatchewan, Canada. I would very much like Father Mitch to comment on the state or properties of the glorified body <clears throat> as it pertains to Enoch, Elijah, and the Virgin Mary. For instance, would not Elijah's and Enoch's earthly body die first before taking on a glorified form in heaven? And is this an example that God can do whatever God wants, as both Enoch and Elijah were taken into heaven before the salvation offered by Christ dying on the cross? Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, we don't we have to keep this in mind. The Bible does not say exactly where the body of Enoch and the body of Elijah went. It doesn't say that it's in the, before the heavenly throne. It's just that their bodies were taken up. And it may well be that there is what sometimes was called the paradise of the fathers. That is, the ancient people um, weren't quite in heaven, but they were in company with each other, and those who were best uh, would be in some sort of fellowship. But that's pure speculation, and uh, this is uh, as much as uh, we uh, can say. You know, so I don't know too much more about that. And um, it doesn't appear that Enoch or Elijah died first before being taken up. It's not what's described. So we'll try to ask them when we see them. So try to get to heaven and join them. We'll be back in just a minute. Again, our phone number here is 205-271-2985 if you're outside North America or 833-288-3986. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. All right, welcome back and we are ready to go to your phone calls. Let us start off with Bernadine from Spokane, Washington. What can we do for you this fine day? Good afternoon, Father Mitch. Um, God's peace. I am Mrs. Kuttner in Spokane, Washington, and I love you. <laughs> I listen to your scriptures and uh, masses and all your talks, so thank you for 
putting me on today. My pleasure. Um, I have heard from a man who I'm 80 in the 80s, and I get supplements, and when I talk with him on phone, I have to order them. He he says he knows the Bible in Greek, and um, we, we we have conversations about the Bible, but he he's a Protestant, um, and when somehow we got on to talking about what love is, and he said, you're all wrong. The Greek translation for love is, to prefer, and I thought, well, God said blood is love, and why, why are you changing that? And so I'm questioning him and want to give your explanation of the meaning of love in oh, Greek. Okay, first of all, <clears throat> um, here's uh, I, this would be a, a good discussion to actually have with him, because <clears throat> there are two things. First, there are multiple words for love in Greek. Which one does he mean? I, oh. I see. I don't know which one he means. Um, in you know, for instance, uh, there's one word for love. I know it in its no- noun form, uh, storgi. Uh, that's usually referring to the kind of love that you have within a family. You know the 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 care of family, you know, lovely parents and children. That shows up. It's not real common, but it shows up. And uh, of course, there is also um, phileo. You know, like the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Well, phileo is the verb to love, and that word tends to refer especially. To friendship. Of course, um, C.S. Lewis brings up well that the word eros, eros um, refers to love, be- uh, romantic love between a man and a woman. While agape um, and, and agapeo as a verb means, you know, the, that's the word that is used, for instance, in the first letter of St. John, chapter 4. Um, God is love, he says God is agape love, and so uh, just as agape. And in, you know, in the secular Greek literature, it, uh, it has a not so uh, special meaning. Um, and I'd like to, here'd be the question I would ask your friend. In which of the Greek literature uh, does uh, that well first of all which word does he mean secondly where in Greek literature does he find the meaning preference and how does how does he derive that that means preference in that literature see when you are, uh, well, not just you, but anybody, is trying to understand the meaning of a word. You look into the literature where it's used, and you see how they mean it. And we go back to, to um, you know, different Greek literature, and I can I can try to take a look. I, I don't have my dictionaries with me 
uh, right now, but I've got a pretty thorough Greek uh, dictionary. Uh, it's 10 volumes. Each volume is about 400 pages. <laughs> That's a fairly thorough Greek. And I can find you know, some of the ancient uses, but ask him where in Greek literature did it mean prefer? Uh, no, we want to get the background on that uh, so that we don't have <clears throat> him assert something without having, you know, clear evidence. Does that make sense? Yes, Father. That I, I have written your word since I'm older, older, but I've written it all down, and it's clear now that I can talk to him sure. in that way. All um, right. So can I ask another thing, please? What's um, that? He said... He said, um, he said, purgatory is a lie by the Catholic Church. Uh-huh. Wondered, I should ask him where he got that. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. What? Where do we lie? Now, is the word purgatory found in the Bible? No. But we do see that there is, you know, that the souls of the dead go to a place called Sheol in Hebrew. And in the New Testament, they uh, we see, for instance, in the first letter of St. Peter, chapter 3, uh, right around verse oh, 20 or so, it mentions that the souls that died before Christ was crucified went to a prison. Now, purgatory is the Latin word for this. And they, so and that's why it's not in the Bible. They didn't write anything in Latin. Uh, they wrote in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. So we have this place that is not heaven, and it's not the place of damnation that First Peter 3 calls the prison. And then we have Sheol, which again is not per, uh, hell, uh, the place of condemnation, nor is it uh, heaven. It's not a pleasant place, but it's not, uh, you know, the place of the damned souls. Um, and so it, when these concepts got put into Latin, they called it the place of cleansing. Or purgatory. That's what purgatory, you know, to purge uh, means to cleanse. Uh, people sometimes purge their bodies, you know, they cleanse their bodies of uh, all kinds of stuff inside. Um, that just means cleansing. And, um, you know, I, uh, to, to, to say that it's a lie is a fairly bold statement. Um, uh, again, uh, like to see what else he has to say on that. We're not lying. Uh, if there were anything, maybe somebody had made a mistake, but I don't think we did. Uh, we're trying to get at a reality that there's a spiritual place that's not hell, but certainly not heaven either. So uh, Christ opened up all those souls. He preached to those souls in prison. 
And it's Jesus, our Lord himself, who in Matthew chapter 5, right around verse 20 or 21, uh, says that you'll go to the prison, stay there till you pay the last penny. There's a sense in which you go to that prison, same word in Greek, by the way, for prison. And you, if you don't make up with your brother, you'll go to prison till you pay the last penny. Uh, there's a sense in which you will suffer punishment there. So, um, you know, we're doing our best, and this was believed in the very early church. So, well, find out more with this where this guy gets his evidence, okay? Thank you for calling, Ms. Bernadine. I appreciate it. Let's now go over to Ryan in Midland of the Republic of Texas. Ryan, what can we do for you? Well, Father, last month I learned how to be a thoroughfare at Mass, and ever since I've been wondering, when did it first start becoming a practice to burn incense at Masses and Divine Liturgy? Uh, I don't know the, the first time. Uh, keep in mind that the use of incense was in the earliest uh, Israelite worship, even when they were in the desert how to make the incense to burn inside their their tent uh temple because their temple was at first just a tent uh the that the formula for making the incense is described in detail in Exodus and they used incense they were given directions on how to use incense in fact when one of the priests uh, in Leviticus chapter 8, misused the incense. He was struck dead. That's bad. And then we see that incense is mentioned all the way through uh, the New Testament. So remember Zechariah went in to offer incense, and that's where the angel Gabriel met him. And then it goes on all the way into the book of Revelation, where it says that the 24 elders around God's throne have golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the faithful, of the saints. And then also in Revelation 8, they, the angels have incense. So because it goes from the Old Testament all the way through the uh, book of Revelation, the church has used incense uh, because our liturgy on earth is meant to be a reflection of the liturgy in heaven. Since they use incense in heaven, we use it here on earth, just as the Jewish people had done in ancient times. Does that help? Yeah. Do you know, real quick, why do Eastern Catholics use it more than us Latin? Is there a is that tradition? Yeah, I, I think there are a couple things. Um, one, incense was much more part of everyday life in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world. People would have incense burners in their homes very commonly. Um, you know, th these uh, uh, various archaeology evidence for that. And I think that they just, uh, of course, they had easier access to incense because they were uh, closer to Arabia, where it came from. So 
Uh, I suspect that it's proximity, easier to get. Uh, it's all over the markets and that people use that every day. It's just a bigger part of the liturgy in the East because we, I know in the Maronite Rite, we use it way more than in the Roman Rite. All right. Again, our telephone number is one 288 3986 in North America or 205-271-2985. Be back in a minute. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Welcome back, and we are ready to speak with Jesse, who is in Hotlanta, Georgia. Jesse, what can we do for you today? Hello, Father. It's it's not that hot today. Um, <laughs> no, it's not hot here either. No, it's yeah, we're we're real similar. Yeah, uh, we have the same weather. We're real similar. So. Uh, yeah, I'm curious about uh, Jesus's time in the garden, and uh, just kind of struck me the other day that you know Jesus tells us not to be afraid, mm-hmm. and there's obviously something distressful to him in the garden, and I'm sure it can't be fear. I'm sure he's not telling us to do things that he couldn't do himself. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the Fathers of the Church, and I found something uh, kind of interesting. They seemed kind of preoccupied that there was a chance Jesus could fall into some sort of conceit because of the great good that he was about to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just thought it was interesting, and I just never heard it before. Right. And they bring up the fact that he brought the same people, the same three that he brought to Mount Tabor just a few chapters earlier, mm-hmm. and they see that as a way for him to kind of keep his humility, I guess, or help with the um, process. And I'm just wondering, do you have anything that I could look at, maybe a book you could recommend about Jesus not being afraid, but what exactly was going on? Like Aquinas doesn't seem to address it the way I'm looking for, and I mm-hmm. don't know if I'm making any sense. Mm-hmm. But... Here's here's one of the things that um, uh, I think is key. Uh, remember, remember in Hebrews, I think it's chapter four, uh, maybe three or, or four. Uh, one of those two, but it says that he was tempted like us in all things, but never sinned. And here, the uh, that's what we talk about him being tempted, and the temptation is to fear. But notice how he he can state that he let let this cup pass uh, from me he'd rather you know cup to you know in the old testament majority of times a few exceptions but the vast majority of times the cup refers to the suffering cup of suffering and that's what he's referring to and he doesn't want to suffer that is a normal human reaction. Uh, in fact, when people 
want to suffer, we usually consider that an abnormality. Uh, the desire to suffering is not a healthy state, but as as he balks from knowing the suffering that's about to take place, he also includes in the statement, yet not my will, but thy will be done, speaking to his father, that he is committed to doing the father's will, but his own human nature recoils against the upcoming death. (coughs) That highlights another element, namely that death is God's enemy, not God's friend. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that um, uh, when it's quoting Psalm 110, that all your enemies will be put under your feet. St. Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 15, including uh, death, which is the final enemy to be defeated. And that, you know, having... uh, Death as an enemy is a part of the reality, and yet he's got to face it. And he doesn't want to, but he wants to do the will of the Father. That's what I think is going on there. Now, I don't know of any literature that specifically deals with it more more than that, Uh, but that would be my sense. Does that help? It does help. It kind of reminds me, I just started this project a couple of weeks ago, and it just kind of reminded me of that Peter Kreef thing when he talks about the books he writes. They're just basically books that nobody else has written mm-hmm. that he was interested in. I, that's just how I keep, kept feeling. The oh, past couple. yeah. Well, yeah, this is, I hadn't uh, looked at that uh, topic, but it's, it's something that might be worth uh, looking at. But, um, yeah, maybe to do uh, more on uh, that aspect of, you know, I know where you might try. Take a look at Archbishop Sheen's Life of Christ. He, I know he spent a, a significant amount of time meditating on the agony in the garden in his sermons. Take a look at that book, uh, which is in general a superb life of Christ. But take a look at that and see if he might not have some insights on uh, the um, gar- garden that'll scratch more where you itch. Does that sound all right? That sounds perfect. I really appreciate it, Father. Absolutely. All right, let us now go to Dave in the great state of Louisiana. What can we do for you? Hey, Father, it's an honor to talk to you. I've watched you over the many years on EWTN. I haven't seen you on TV in a long time, but I just don't get ESPN on TV. Well, so that'll do it. It's an honor to talk to you. I'm well, always admired you. listening to you. Um, thank you. Okay, so I, I, um, I've got a uh, Bible passage that was kind of brought up to me quite a few years ago by a convert to Catholicism. He was, uh, before that, was a pretty adamant, very anti-Catholic guy. Um, mm-hmm. He, uh, we were talking about uh, John chapter 6, and he had mentioned that was a, a very important chapter for him. Sure. Finally uh, coming back to uh, our big converting to Catholicism, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you, you're familiar with that yes. particular discourse. 
But he brought up something that kind of like it, I never even noticed it. And it was, uh, he said, you know, after he, Jesus talks about over and over and over again, telling them that they must eat his uh, flesh or, or not have, they won't have eternal life. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that, that following all of that, the, all, a, a lot of his followers turned their back on him and left. And he said, you know, this is, you know what, he, he, he said, you know what really hit me was, this was uh, John chapter 6, verse mm-hmm. 66. Right. <laughs> when he mentioned that, you know, he said, you know how we always talk about that number 666, of, uh-huh. you know, in Revelation. <laughs> he said that it really scared him. Uh, and he had, and I said, well, you know, I said, you know, the when when uh, when John wrote this, I don't think he has, he assigned uh, chapters and verses at the time, but no. it is kind of weird how when it finally gets put into chapter and verses, that I just found it really weird is that the unbelievers are assigned that particular chapter and verse, and I brought that up to a few people, and no one ever really thought of it, and I was just wondering had. Have any priests or anybody in theology or have anybody ever picked that up and said, "Wow, what a weird coincidence"? John, Not, it's thick, yeah, it's I've thick. never heard that coincidence mentioned. Uh, you remember the chapters were identified by an English monk in the 11th century A.D. And the verses were added by Gutenberg around 1450 when he invented the printing press. So they came fairly, the verses especially came fairly late um, and didn't get the verse number 66 until 1450. But uh, so it would not have been, uh, you were correct to tell your friend, it would not have been something John intended. But uh, it's just one of those coincidences that uh, is worth pointing out. So, uh, but, you know, I wouldn't be overly scared because of the verse number. I would be more concerned about being among those who don't believe in the Eucharist and uh, fail to walk with Jesus. That would be very important. All right, good. Well, let's now go over to Dolly in Pensacola, Florida. Hey, Father Mitch. Man, what can we do for you? My question is about John the Baptist. When Mother Mary, the Virgin Mary, visited her after her conception, immaculate conception, when she visited her cousin, when when Elizabeth either saw or heard, I think heard Mary's greeting, because I don't have the Bible in front of me, I think it was heard Mary's greeting, the baby in Elizabeth, John the Baptist, he he jumped, he leaped, whatever word, in Elizabeth's room. And I'm calling you, Father Mitch, because you will give me the, the, the meaning underneath. I never really thought about jumped or leaped. Okay, yippee, skippy, that, you know. <laughs> but there's got to be the Holy Spirit 
with Mary and with Elizabeth and with John the Baptist. So he's a he he's still a fetus. He's in Elizabeth's room. He jumped. Does that have some meaning? Now he was conceived in the natural, not like Mary. Um, he was conceived in the usual way. But when he jumped in Elizabeth's womb, does that mean that the Holy Spirit, was he saved, John the Baptist saved at that point? He wasn't even born yet. Yeah, I know. Saved? Okay. Let me, uh, just ch- checking something. But here's one of the things that is a, uh, a, a strong connection. When King David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem from Kiryat Ye'arim, uh, which is just a few miles to the west. When he had that brought in, he danced and leapt before the Ark. And John the Baptist leaping before, as the Blessed Virgin Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. Jesus is in her womb, and John leaping and dancing inside his mother's womb is an action of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth says, when she gets filled with the Holy Spirit, that the babe in my womb leapt when you approach. And it seems to be parallel to David leaping and dancing when he Uh, led the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. I think that is the connection that we ought to make. Does that help you? Well, uh, well, yeah, that that makes the uh, the connection, but it still doesn't say that, mm, I mean, because he... It doesn't say what? What is it you wanted to to get at? was, Was John the Baptist... He wasn't born yet. No, he was six and months in the womb. He had his ministry to do. Jesus didn't die, so he hadn't risen yet. So right. heaven was not open yet. Right. But was John the Baptist actually at that point saved? I guess it's my question. That we don't know. But he certainly did receive the Holy Spirit who allowed him to recognize Jesus and the presence of Jesus, even though the child Jesus was in the womb just a few days after conception, which also means that nobody else would be able to detect by physical observation Mary's being pregnant. She would not, you know, within, you know, a week or so after conception, she certainly wouldn't be showing that she's going to have a child. And a six-month-old baby in the womb wouldn't detect it. This was, uh, in any physical way, this is an action of the Holy Spirit, and that the, the church fathers usually say that he was sanctified in the womb. Uh, and, you know, but then, of course, he still had to be born and live out his life and follow his vocation to be the forerunner of Christ. And that would take place 
in his adulthood. But even at this earliest stage inside the womb, he's able to be filled with the Holy Spirit, as was his mother. And in that, both of them are able to recognize that Jesus is present. Uh, So that even Elizabeth says, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She recognizes, so does John. That's the key element. Does that help better? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Father. You're welcome. All right, let us now go to Brandon in beautiful Tulsa, Oklahoma. Brandon, what can we do for you? Hi, Father Mitch. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, so, uh, I, I recently, or not recently, I left the church back in 2011, the Catholic Church. I was baptized in 2008, and I uh, recently uh, came back to the Catholic Church about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I regularly try to go to Mass and confession and everything like that. Good. But... I also go to uh, my mother's uh, Baptist church that she goes to, and I've been going. I've been mm-hmm. going to that church for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. So, what what I'm what I want to say is something that I've noticed: the the pastor of her church likes to. He doesn't do it all the time, but he likes to talk negatively about the Catholic Church, and mm-hmm. he. Last time, or last Sunday, he talked about purgatory, and he said that uh, Catholics put rocks in their shoes and wear a belt of nails in order to make them suffer, and that their suffering helps free a soul from purgatory. Yeah, and that it undermines it undermines Jesus's suffering on the cross. That I just wanted to kind of, I, I wanted to get your feedback on that and where he got that source because i googled that and i couldn't find it anywhere do you know why do you you know Uh, why you couldn't find it because we don't teach that have you ever heard a sermon or a class on putting rocks in your shoes to get souls out of purgatory no. Neither have I. And I've been Catholic longer than you have. I've been Catholic for over 74 years. And I've never heard that. What does that tell you about the preacher? If you've I, never heard it, I've never heard it. I, you can't find it when you Google it. What does that tell you about him? that maybe his sources aren't, aren't credible? <laughs> I don't know. At the very least, and it may also be that his he or his sources are making that up. I don't know which, but I have never heard a sermon and I went to Catholic school, and the nuns never said you can get per- souls out of purgatory by putting rocks in your shoes. I never heard that. I, I mean, we pray for the poor souls. I do that all the time. I'm happy to do that. 
but um, you know, this is something that I'm going to guess this, Brandon. He, uh, 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 I'll say this, a Protestant seminary friend of mine, back when I was, you know, a young seminarian, had, uh, uh, and I, I was studying uh, Hebrew at the Lutheran school that he attended. And he said, you Catholics have no idea how strong a temptation it is for us Protestants to become Catholic. And what I wonder is whether your minister friend has a strong temptation to be Catholic and he sees something that he likes and he is grabbing at straws, I would say non-existent straws, to uh, you know, avoid becoming Catholic by saying these things. Because I don't, I never heard that stuff. So I think he's, he's looking for straws to grab onto because he might actually be uh, nervous about whether the Catholic Church is more true than the Baptist Church. So he's saying things that are not true about us. And this is something that, um, at, you know, if, if you can charitably say this to him, where did you get that from? And it's not in the Catholic Catechism. It's not in any of the Catholic Catechisms. Uh, where did you get that from? And uh, because I can't find it, and, and I called priest on TV, or radio, he can't find it. Does that, make a, does that sound like a decent question to ask him? Yeah, I can I can do that. But the other things he does, I only go with a couple of them. He 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 goes on to talk about the Catholic Church uh, has pictures, statues, the crucifix, and their idols, and yeah. the Catholic Church wor- worships idols, and that that I understand. Uh, the call screener kind of briefly went over it with. Me. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been to Baptist churches that have stained glass windows of Jesus the Good Shepherd. I I don't think that they are worshiping that picture. They worship Jesus. And we don't worship. I, I mean, again, the catechism is specific. You may not worship any statues, and you may not worship Mary or any of the saints. That's I learned that in third grade when I, I started Catholic school in third grade. I would have learned that earlier in the catechism. Um, had I been in Catholic school earlier. But I started in third grade, and from the first year I was in Catholic school, it was in the catechism. You can't worship Mary. It's a sin to worship Mary or the saints or statues or crucifixes. We were taught that. So, again, he's not telling the truth about what Catholics teach. He may be tempted to be a Catholic, and maybe he needs to be invited all right, Brandon, go and talk to the man. I think that'd be a good idea. Let me now go to Ruth, who is in the wonderful city of St. Petersburg. I love that town. What can we do for you, Ruth? Oh, Father, I have a question. We're going to park the address and walk it out. Jesus. Wait a minute. How many of you are on this telephone call? 
Oh, no, no, no. My sister's in with me, Father. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I thought uh, thought this was a party line. So go ahead. What's no, your no, question? No, no, party line. No, 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 Father. We wouldn't do that to you. No, no, no. So so what's when, your question? When Christ, was, when Christ was carrying his cross, and they asked Simon the Cyrene to help him carry it, how far did he walk? Not real far. Um, the, the fifth station to Calvary is maybe three quarters of a kilometer. That's a, if that, if that, it's not far at all. I mean, when I'm walking, I mean, I'm not carrying a cross, but if I'm just walking from the fifth station on the Via Dolorosa over to the um, uh, the the tomb of Jesus, I can get there in just you know five. Uh, between five and ten minutes, so it's, you know, walking quickly, so it's it's not that far. Does that help? Yeah, because some I read someone's the cross weighed eighty eight pounds. Uh, we don't know that. Uh, you know, we we don't know how much it weighed. Um, so I, I don't speculate on the the pounds, but it would have been obviously heavy enough to cause our Lord exhaustion, and he needed that help. So, uh, and by the way, uh, if you notice in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 15, Simon the Cyrene is called the um, uh, father of Alexander and Rufus. And I think that they, uh, they are mentioned with their mother as being part of the Christian community in Rome. So uh, they, that's how we would know about that. But yeah, it's not that far. All right. Let me give you all a blessing. May Almighty God bless you and keep you. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless and we'll see you next week.